Welcome to Voices of Santa Clara. Having a good idea doesn't get you done. And if we'd hit those, there would have been an explosion. We would have died, obviously. Scholarship should cultivate the virtues. Worry more about, am I searching for what I should be doing next in the world? Welcome to the fifth episode of the Voices of Santa Clara podcast. Today, I am talking with Dr. Chad Raphael, communications professor and former chair of the communications department at Santa Clara University. Dr. Raphael has written dozens of publications on a wide variety of topics, including politics, environmental ethics, media, education, and communication. And his most recent book he published in 2014 is called Deliberation, Democracy, and Civic Forums. In this broad conversation, we cover Dr. Raphael's career path, the most effective ways to spur political change, why he published his most recent book, how to engage with the news in our current political climate, and much, much more. Unfortunately, I had some technical difficulties in recording this interview, so the audio quality isn't quite as high as I'd like it to be, but I hope you'll find this interview engaging and interesting nonetheless. So please enjoy the conversation. To start out, I'm wondering if there are any teachers or mentors that influenced the rest of your life. Yeah, I would say that um, my mother has always been a really important mentor to me in terms of the way she's lived her life. She's somebody who um, has an enormous amount of courage. Uh, she's a world traveler, always wants to go to the most interesting and sometimes the most dangerous places in the world, which is you know, sometimes hard for a kid um, to handle, but um, fascinated by other people and fascinated by education. So after I went off to high school, uh, she decided to go back and create a, start a new school, basically an alternative public school in New York City. And that drew kids from Harlem, uh, Spanish Harlem, and uh, the Upper West Side. Uh, so she's someone who uh, is very engaged in the world, very never operates from a place of fear, always from a place of curiosity. Uh, so I think she's probably been the biggest influence. And it seems like today you're interested in such a wide variety of topics with the environment and journalism and politics. Did any of those interests start at a young age? Yeah, I certainly grew up, um, you know, in a house where we all kind of fought for the one copy of the New York Times that was on the table and it often got torn up into different sections and pieces and passed around. There was a lot of talk about politics um, at the dinner table. Uh, my older siblings were very interested in it. Um, and uh, my mother was very interested in the environment. She was involved with the foundation that was uh, funding environmental issues, work on environmental issues, particularly environmental justice. Um, and eventually I served on the board of that foundation and learned a lot about the issues that way. Um, so yeah, and then always just fascinated with the media. Um, mm. You know, when I was growing up, television was the most dominant medium, and so there was always there was a lot of television going on, and my siblings were fascinated with everything from the soap operas to TV sports uh, news. So the media was always kind of omnipresent. Hmm. Mm -hmm. And then you studied at Harvard uh, English, right? And so how how did you end up there, and what were you like as a college student? So um, I, I guess I ended up there because I applied and you know won the lottery and got in, right? It's, there's a lot of luck involved. Um, and uh, I loved it there. I really enjoyed it. And I mainly learned from um, the other students around me who were fascinating, you know, brilliant folks. Um, 
some from some of the graduate students. I had a graduate tutor who I learned a lot from in English. Uh, and then the professors were, uh, some of them were very good lecturers. You didn't really get very close to them. It wasn't like Santa Clara in that way. Um, but it was just so exciting to be in this atmosphere where everybody was really interested and passionate about ideas. Mm. So that was wonderful. And then in, most of my time actually was spent in a theater. I was an actor and a director, and so I spent a lot of time um, performing in plays, directing plays. Uh, and so that was a big part of my life in high school and college as well. Hmm. What were your career plans in college? I think, you know, if, if somebody asked me, what, was your, what are you going to try when you got out of school, it probably would have been acting. Um, but when I got out, uh, one of the first jobs I got was working for an affordable housing organization that was started by the hotel workers, um, uh, local union 26 in Boston. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I organized, I did tenant organizing in some low-income areas of Boston. Uh, the union had just won a, the first in, of, it, of its kind housing benefit where the hotel owners agreed to pay five cents an hour for every hour worked by every hotel worker into a housing trust fund that employees could use to, you know, um, uh, pay first or last month's rent, security deposit on a, on a rental unit, uh, or even to buy a house you know, as part of their down payment. Mm-hmm. So I got really interested in politics through that, and city politics in particular. And there was this brilliant um, union president who knew how to um, work through the news media, you know, feed a story, frame a story that the news media would want to report um, about what was going on with workers and what they were struggling with. Mm-hmm. Um, so I learned a lot from him, and that drove me back to graduate school. I was interested in how can community organizations use the news media um, more effectively. Hmm. And then, so you uh, you went back to you went back to school to study uh, television and um, and communication. So how uh, did d- did you keep up your nonprofit involvement, or did you just go um, back into school? So I, I uh, got on the board of this Environmental mm-hmm. Justice Foundation mm-hmm. at that time, um, and then I moved from Boston to Chicago to go to school at Northwestern for mm-hmm. graduate school, um, and that pretty much consumed most of my time. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. What was the most uh, challenging part of that graduate school experience, and what do you think you took away from it? One challenging part was the weather in Chicago. It, it sounds trivial, but... Um, you know, it, if you've ever been in the Midwest between about November and April, the sky feels like it's about three feet above your head and it's all gray cloud um, and the wind blows very cold. So, um, you know, keeping your spirits up is a challenge with what was for me. And then um, I think just focusing, you know, the thing about graduate school is, um, you know, when you go to college, it's like you, you enter through the narrow end of the funnel and you come out the wide end of the funnel and now you're prepared to do all sorts of things that you weren't prepared to do beforehand all kinds of work graduate school is the other way you go in from the the wide end of the funnel Mm -hmm. and you're really pointing towards some very narrow end preparing you for um expertise in a very specific field Mm -hmm. and that narrowing process can feel a little constricting Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. Uh, suddenly you can't take all the broad range of courses you wanted to take Mm -hmm you have to start defining yourself and finding a dissertation topic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so for somebody who's always had a lot of different interests, mm-hmm. that can be, like me, that's kind of challenging. Mm-hmm. And then what led you uh, to teaching? 
um, my, my whole family are educators. My father was a high school teacher, English. My mother was a high, a high school teacher before she um, had kids and then went back and started her own school. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had siblings who are educators. Mm-hmm. Uh, my brother's a theater professor at Rutgers. Um, my grandparents were educators. So it's like the family business. Um, mm-hmm. And there's a lot of respect for teaching uh, and value of teaching. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that's probably the main reason. Mm-hmm. And then how did you uh, end up at Santa Clara? Um, as soon as I finished my coursework, I was starting my dissertation, and my wife said, I'm ready to go back and get my PhD now. So uh, she decided that she uh, wanted to go to Stanford uh, to go to the education school there. And I said, I'm, you know, you moved for me to Chicago. I'm ready to move anywhere you, you want me to move at this point. So we moved out here, and I started looking for part-time teaching jobs to um, support myself while I was writing my dissertation. And I got uh, some teaching at University of San Francisco, and then I also got some down here. And I really liked uh, the community, the size of the community here. Um, I like the social justice mission of the university. Uh, I like my colleagues in the department. And so when a full-time position opened up, mm-hmm. I applied for it, and this is where I wanted to be. I, I didn't go on the national job market uh, and look for jobs elsewhere in the country. Mm-hmm. Were there any... Uh, funny stories or experiences from your first couple years teaching where you learned something new? Yeah, I I came in having been raised on the model where the professor is the sage on the stage and lectures for 45 minutes or an hour and then class is over. Um, Because at Harvard you have big classes and there's not, there there are few seminars, fewer small classes. So um, it was a pleasurable uh, but sometimes humiliating discovery that I didn't and couldn't teach that way. I didn't have to teach mm-hmm. that way. I couldn't. So I had to make design, redesign all my teaching and my thoughts about teaching to be much more interactive, mm-hmm. um, which was good uh, because people learn better that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I remember putting up large blocks of text in front of people, you know, mm-hmm. projecting huge blocks of text and mm-hmm. them looking at me like, are we supposed to write all that down? And, <laughs> Because, you know, that's, we're not going to do that. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, so, yeah, I think that was the biggest discovery for me. What's your favorite class to teach? Do you have one? I have a lot of them. Um, I do really enjoy right now, I enjoy teaching this course on news and democracy, which mm-hmm. I'm teaching this quarter. Mm-hmm. Um, I teach it every fall um, during election season. And while there aren't a lot, there isn't much on the ballot this fall, uh, I taught it last year during the presidential election, which was a really intense time to be studying the role of the news media in politics. Um, so that was, yeah, I mean, I'll always remember coming back and to class the day after election day, and some people in the class were kind of quietly happy, and other people were uh, really, really distraught, and just talking through with people, you know, what does this mean? And, um, for the country um, and having people rise to the occasion and have a, a discussion where people were able to say what they were feeling and thinking um, but were also able to let other people say different things about what they were feeling and thinking and that's just extraordinarily hard for people to do right now in this country mm-hmm. so polarized mm-hmm. um, yeah on that subject of news I feel like um, you know as an American citizen it's a good thing for me to be engaged with the news and know what's going on around me. But then also I hear uh, people say that it can be, you know, can be harmful and it can be discouraging if you're spending a lot of time reading the news. So what, 
what strategies do you recommend, I guess, for balancing that? Yeah. One of the first assignments that we do in that news and democracy class is everybody keeps an inventory of all the news they consume for a week. So they write down the headlines of the stories, um, what news sources, was it CNN, New York Times, Fox News, whatever it was. And then um, what did you feel you learned and how did it make you feel to do that? And then they step back from it and they look at patterns like, am I only looking at national news? Am I um, only looking at news about President Trump's tweets and people who responded to them? Um, what, what's missing from my news diet, basically? Um, and then people craft a plan for what would my ideal news diet look like? What would be the mix of different kinds of news? Um, what different sources do I need to add to my news diet? Um, we talk a lot about um, uh, news aggregation apps so that people can identify particular topics of interest to them and get fed mm -hmm. some of those stories. Mm -hmm. And then also I introduce a, um, a number of sources of exclusively positive news. Mm -hmm. So there, there are news providers out there that only focus on solutions-oriented journalism. Mm -hmm. So not just what's the problem, but here are some people who are trying this particular approach to address a social issue. Mm -hmm. um, and then the end of the course is really about what are some proposals for reforming journalism in ways that would strengthen democracy. Mm -hmm. So we don't just point to all the problems. Mm -hmm. We think about what, we, what could we do and what's being done right now to improve journalism and political communication. Hmm. That's awesome. What what trends, I guess, then in journalism for the next five years, or what are you, what changes are you hoping to see in the industry? Where do you think it's going to grow? So, um, I think in the things that I'm most hopeful about, um, kind of on the structural side, are not for profit or not for very much profit um, news organizations. Mm -hmm. um, ProPublica is a um, uh, investigative reporting organization that does a really good job of really staying with a story and investigating it for a long period of time and then parceling out what they find into stories that can be reported in a lot of different kinds of media and they're independently funded by a, a major donor who keeps an arm's length distance so that the journalists can um, uh, report independently. Um, I'm also enthusiastic about different approaches to journalism that a lot of news organizations are trying. Oh, and, and the reason that I'm kind of excited about the not-for-profit model is there's a long history of publicly funded media doing a better job mm -hmm. of providing people with substantive news that they need to be well-informed citizens. Mm -hmm. The BBC, NPR, and PBS. Mm -hmm. Without those commercial pressures um, to just focus on kind of salacious, scandalous type of coverage. Mm -hmm. Um, and these new nonprofits are starting to speak to an audience that maybe those older public media don't speak to as well. Younger people, um, immigrants, people of color. Mm -hmm. um, and then I'm also interested in approaches like solutions-oriented journalism, um, which is focusing really heavily on going out and talking to people about different solutions to pressing social problems. Mm -hmm. Uh, reporting on what they think about them and exploring different opportunities for change. Mm -hmm. um, and then also what's called participatory journalism, where you you go out and you ask your audience, what are the most important concerns to you? What do you want to hear news about? So you, let, you, you help them drive the agenda. Mm -hmm. And then you go and you report those stories, you tell them what they need to hear, and then you ask them for their reactions. So it's much more of a dialogue, a conversation between journalists and their audiences. 
uh, I think that has a lot of promise. Hmm. Are there any specific uh, websites or organizations that are doing this that you recommend that students take a look at? So I think the solutions-oriented journalism you can find in a lot of different fields. There are um, online news sites, for example, on environmental news. Um, uh, Solutions Journal is one on environmental stuff. Yes, uh, Y-E-S, exclamation point, which is a... I've actually written for them, uh, where they will only publish articles that talk about, and here's a positive solution, and here's some evidence that it's working. Hmm. Um, so those are just two, a couple of examples. Yeah, for sure. And then kind of um, moving a little into politics, let's let's imagine we have a student who's passionate about a cause that requires political reform, whether that's rights for immigrants or or, or healthcare or anything of that sort, but. Um, they kind of feel like they personally don't have any power and they're not really sure what they can do to make a difference. What would you tell to that student? Join organizations. Organizations make political change. Um, and yes, organizations are made up of individuals. But individually, yes, we do have very little power individually. Mm-hmm. Our individual vote, our individual voice, um, not that powerful until we join with others. So look for the organizations that um, are out there that have good websites that will inform you about what bills are moving through Congress or the state legislature, what demonstrations are coming up, who are the candidates who you you know might want to look at voting for. Mm-hmm. Um, support them. Don't just sit, write them a check. Get in, find organizations that you can actively get involved in, where you can go to meetings, meet people who care about the issues you do, because that will sustain your your activism as well, making it a social and a cultural, uh, socially and culturally meaningful experience, not just writing a check or mm. signing an online petition. Hmm. Yeah. And then a couple years ago in 2014, you wrote the book, uh, Deliberation, Democracy, and Civic Forum. So I guess what inspired you to do that and what did you kind of learn from that experience? So most of my life I had been studying and participating in advocacy groups or working for a foundation that helped fund them. And I think they play a crucial role in democracy. There's this whole other way of participating in democracy that's also really important, and that's deliberating with your fellow citizens. By citizens, I don't just mean people who have, you know, the government um, has their citizenship papers in order. I mean, anybody who's taking responsibility for public life. And there are a whole bunch of people who aren't official citizens in the United States who are more active in that regard than people who have citizenship status, right? Um, But being able to sit down and talk with people who come from different backgrounds, who have different political views, um, and have um, an honest exchange and try to explore solutions and and actions that you could take together, that's also really valuable. And it's really hard to do these days, much harder than in the past, because we have a very polarized um, national political scene. It's not as bad at the local level. Um, and because we have increasingly partisan news media, uh, which have affiliated very strongly with the dominant views on the two political parties, and which have, are really kind of segmenting their audiences and really primarily going for conservatives or liberals. Mm-hmm. So it's become a lot harder for people to talk across difference. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's why I felt like that book was something important for me to write. Mm-hmm. And if now, three years later, you had to add an afterword or add anything to it, would you would you change it at all, or what would you add? I guess I would underscore the, the growing importance of it. But um, when I look at the other ways that we try to resolve political difference, they're just not working well right now. Congress can't act very effectively because it's so 
polarized. Um, uh, our political leaders are in permanent campaign mode. They're always uh, tearing down the opposition, uh, looking for advantage, which you have to do in a campaign. But it used to be that once the campaign was over, people could move a little bit more into a governance mode where you make necessary compromises. You think, what's the best thing for the country as a whole? Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't demonize your opponents to their face. You keep the door open to be able to make deals that improve the country, even though you're not going to get 100% of what you want. Hmm. Um, so I, I guess I would say, given the fact that the political system is so dysfunctional right now, um, and that we have a president who, who frankly, um, just engages in, in trashing people, right? Mm-hmm that it's all the more important that citizens create these pockets where we can have um, civil productive dialogue about our differences and because the political system is increasingly failing at that at least at the national level yeah and then i'm also kind of interested in hearing some about your your research so i'm wondering if there i know you've done a lot of projects throughout uh, your career but are there any that uh, that stand out as particularly interesting or challenging or memorable so i guess i have kind of three broad lines of research that i've worked on one is environmental communication um, particularly looking at uh, kind of the sustainable electronics movement so um, how do we stop shipping our e-waste abroad to low-income countries where there's very few environmental protections? Um, uh, how do we um, produce this stuff more sustainably? And that was an issue that I got interested in working on this foundation and then started to pursue here when I came to Silicon Valley because this is the headquarters of the, uh, the electronics industry in a lot of ways. Um, and there it's been really meaningful to work with um, a guy named Ted Smith who founded Silicon Valley Toxics Coalition, mm-hmm. and the first group that uh, tried to improve the environmental um, impact of the high-tech industry here. Um, and so I've been able to work with a lot of advocates and, and write co-author with Ted about communication strategies. And that's been a lot to me because it's um, practical work, right? I'm not just writing about what other people, how other people are communicating, I'm helping people design campaigns to try to protect people's health around the world from some of the threats um, in our devices. Uh, so I, I get a big charge out of that work. It's, it's really um, rewarding because it's kind of part advocacy and part communication campaign design. Mm-hmm. I've also gotten a lot of um, uh, joy out of working on political communication issues, even though this stuff is often hard. Um, when I go and I observe real people sitting down in a well-facilitated dialogue about uh, political issues, it just totally restores my faith in democracy, that people actually are very much capable of working through problems with each other and having respectful dialogue. Mm-hmm. Um, we, you know, we can do it. Um, so we just got to create the right conditions. Mm-hmm. So I think those are two things that especially mm-hmm. encourage me. Mm-hmm. And for a lot of your research projects you've involved uh, students undergraduates so kind of like how do you usually do that and why is that important to you yeah that's the that's the third thing i've loved um, um santa clara really values involving undergraduates in research in a lot of different ways uh senior capstone regular classes where we we you know do little research projects um uh throughout gather data analyze it um, so, and they also really encourage professors to take on 
research assistants and, and even to um, have students co-author when, when their contribution merits that. Mm -hmm. So there's funding for that here, which I really appreciate. Mm -hmm. um, it wouldn't be the same at a big research institution, UCLA, Harvard, whatever. Um, they're focused on the graduate students. Mm -hmm. right? So that's been one impetus to do it. Another is just I've had such a great time working with undergraduates um, because the best undergraduates here are just as good and strong as the best undergraduates anywhere. Um, very capable of contributing to the research. And they also tend to hold professors. Um, uh, they're very good to test out ideas on because if, if you're using a lot of jargon, usually that's a mask for um, vague, fuzzy thinking. Mm -hmm. And when a, an undergraduate looks at you, you know, and kind of cocks their head like, you know, like a, what are you talking about? Um, that's usually a pretty good sign that you can clarify your thinking. Mm -hmm. So I find that's very helpful too. Mm -hmm. And then it's exciting to see them go off to graduate school and jobs where, you know, it means a lot to them that they have this research experience. Mm -hmm. Have there been any research projects where... Um, you've maybe thought one you thought one thing going into it and then coming out you were totally surprised by the results or you discovered something really interesting that you didn't expect going into the research yeah I would say one of them is um, when I first started studying um, civic deliberation the model at that time in the field was the, the only good kind of deliberation is deliberation where you get people who come into it um, from different backgrounds and they disagree. Mm -hmm. But a colleague here in law school um, and I had organized uh, this, what's called a consensus conference where you, you get about 12 everyday people together about how could we um, extend broadband internet access to the communities that are least likely to have it in Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. So low-income people, people of color, uh, people with disabilities. Uh, rural people um, also have very low access. And so what we did was instead of getting this kind of cross-section of Silicon Valley, we only went out and chose representatives of people from those communities mm -hmm. because for our purposes, that's what made sense. Mm -hmm. And what we ended up writing about for this first article was sometimes people need to talk in their own enclaves. Mm -hmm. Disempowered people need to. People who are on the short end of the stick. Sometimes it's really important for them to discover their common interests, build up some confidence talking about this stuff before they go out and have a conversation with other people who are more privileged, mm. experts, folks like that. Um, so we, actually a lot of the book is about the value of having these kind of enclave um, discussions and they should be deliberation. People should disagree and they, they need to acknowledge their disagreements, talk about them. Um, but you actually sometimes need to get people um, together among birds of a feather before they can go out and talk in more diverse groups, and, and they can do it. They're very capable of doing it. Mm -hmm. And then in addition to uh, to teaching at Santa Clara, you've also worked on several different committees helping with the, the core curriculum and the university strategic vision. So what are you excited about for the future of Santa Clara? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I think the university's done a good job in the time I've been here, which is about you know, 15, 20 years. Um, they've done a good job of moving from a university that was a very good teaching institution to one that is still a good teaching institution and also encourages faculty to do research. So for me, I'm, I'm excited about continuing to build and integrate the research and 
uh, the teaching that are happening at Santa Clara. Mm-hmm. Um, programs like the Global Social Benefit Fellowships that the Miller Center offers, mm-hmm. uh, which involve um, not only sending students abroad to go do research with um, uh, with social entrepreneurs, but also sending some faculty out there as well. Mm-hmm. I think that that kind of stuff is really exciting, and the more mm-hmm. programs that we can create where students get those opportunities, mm-hmm. uh, the better the better students will uh, students and faculty will be. Mm-hmm. And I guess thinking about all the different subjects you've worked with in your career, it seems like a lot of them can be uh, sometimes be a little depressing, right, with climate change and uh, the new current news climate and stuff like that. So I guess how do you stay optimistic when working with these subjects? Yeah, I think a couple of things um, helped me to do it. So one was that first work experience that I had working for this affordable housing organization that the hotel workers had started where I, I helped organize five buildings that were owned by a slumlord. We ended up getting the Boston Housing Court to take those buildings away from him and turn them over to a nonprofit, which remodeled them, got housing subsidies attached to the units. And I went back, this was like 25 years ago, I went back to Boston a couple of years ago, and the buildings looked great. I drove past them, I got out, I walked around. The, neighborhoods around them have gentrified a little bit and so a lot of the other buildings around them have been um, fixed up but I know that those buildings are still affordable and I I met some of the people who I was organizing with 25 years ago were still living in the units when you have like a a victory like that and you see wow I can actually make tangible change here it gives you hope um, that you know politics isn't just guys in three piece suits figuring out um, how to you know screw the opposition? Um, there's a lot at stake. There's a lot of good things that can that can come um, of uh, of advocacy and passing better laws. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think also the other thing is just looking for individuals and and campaigns that have succeeded. Um, looking for news about them, mm-hmm. not just focusing on what's wrong, mm-hmm. but who's getting stuff done. Um, who's making positive change. Mm -hmm. Hmm. And what, uh, moving forward in the next couple years, are some topics that you'd like to uh, maybe study more or um, learn more about or research? It's a good question. I I think I'm probably going to try to write a book that um, might be good for kind of first-year college students. Mm on how can I practice um, citizenship? Mm-hmm. Like, what does the research say about the most effective ways in which I can follow the news, um, join particular organizations and work with them, um, all the stuff that I've been talking about here? How should I figure out how to vote? Not like, you know, you should go vote for a particular party or whatever, but when I'm confronted with like a 300-page voter pamphlet from the state of California with 20 different propositions and, you know, 20 different races, um, and I'm just overwhelmed, because who wouldn't be? How do you you look at that and say, I could still vote? I might not have to vote on everything that's being put in front of me, but I could, there are some techniques I can use, right, to figure out what's a well-informed vote that I can cast on this issue. So it's some basic stuff like that. Um, if you, if I could put that together in 180 to 200 pages, that's home, that's fun enough to read that people would want to read it, right? Um, and that encourages people to be hopeful. Uh, I think that would be worth doing. Mm-hmm.
yeah, I think that would be really useful for um, for college students because it's so overwhelming the amount of information out there. Um, yeah, so I'd, I'd like to wrap up by asking a couple shorter questions. So uh, first of all, maybe in addition to your uh, your future book, what other books do you recommend that uh, college students read, that every student should read? Yeah, one of them is a book that we're using in this News and Democracy class. It's called Blur. Um, it's by two former journalists, Bill Kovach and, and Tom Rosenstiel. And what they've done is... Um, really kind of walk people through uh, what should I expect from good journalism? How do I distinguish more and less reliable and credible journalism? Um, and so that's one inspiration for me to write this kind of broader book about mm-hmm. how could I go about being an effective participant mm-hmm. in civic life. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's really accessible and it's um, uh, the students in my classes seem to enjoy reading it a lot and they get a lot out of it. Uh, and they really feel like I, I'm much more literate about news and I can um, read the news much more critically now than I, than I did before. So that's one thing that would kind of be at the top of my list right now. Mm-hmm. If you could send a message to every person in the United States, what would you say? <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, get off Twitter and go talk to each other. You know? I mean, go talk to each other face to face. Get into a small group of people um, who live where you live and work on having a civil conversation about the problems that are facing all of us mm-hmm. and what we can do about them. Just get off Twitter. Stop Stop following celebrities who, mm-hmm. who get into struggles with each other. Mm-hmm. Stop focusing on what the president's tweeting, what people are tweeting back. It's all noise. Go talk to real people. Figure mm-hmm. out what to do. What's your favorite place that you've traveled to? Wow. I have to pick one. <laughs> That's you tough. can mention a couple if okay, you want. All right, all right. <laughs> you're, you're a tough interviewer. Uh, one of my favorite places is the small town of uh, city of Siena in Italy. Uh, it's in Tuscany. It's about an hour outside Florence. Mm-hmm. And there's this beautiful campo. Um, it's like an oblong town square where they have a horse race, famous horse race every year called the Palio. And people come uh, from their neighborhoods, and all the neighborhoods have a mascot, like the snail neighborhood. And the, right, you know, they've all got an animal mascot or something. And they, each neighborhood um, enters a horse. Mm-hmm. And, and they compete with each other, and then they're all really proud of their town. Right, yeah. um, their city, um, and everybody packs into this small square to watch it once a year. It's it's this beautiful town. It's Italy. The food is amazing. The views are great, um, and there's this horse race. Mm. So that's one. Mm-hmm. If you could have dinner with anyone from history, who would you have dinner with? Oh boy, definitely not Henry VIII because he had terrible tears. <laughs> um, who would I have dinner with? That's such a funny question. It's one that gets asked a lot and that I've never thought about. Um, I suppose it would be very interesting to have dinner with uh, Mohandas Gandhi and ask him, how did you not, how did you go through your entire life without fighting back? How did you maintain an unviolent approach when you were so aware of the injustice that was happening, you know, under colonialism? 
how did you have the self-discipline never to waver from that I think that's an amazing accomplishment and then finally what advice would you give to a first year college student Mm. Uh, stretch yourself I know it's not very original but um, don't don't worry so much about uh, the difference between an A minus and a B plus Go, go try something. Worry more about am I am I searching for what I should be doing next in the world? Yeah. Am I taking courses that and engaging in extracurricular activities, which are just as important? That will help me discover my passion. Yeah. And don't worry about what the trail of little marks called grades are called, you know, look like. Don't worry so much about that. Yeah, well, awesome. Well, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciated it. Sure. Thank you for listening to the show. You can check out Voices of Santa Clara on Facebook. You can go to VoicesOfSantaClara.com or you can go to the iTunes podcast app and subscribe. Special thanks to Miles Elliott for the intro and outro music. And I will see you later. Have a good day. Have a good day.